realizing after you bought the shirt and brought it home that it is, in fact, too small. Now, those kind of regrets happen all the time. They're not very important. There are bigger, more significant regrets. You may regret not reaching out to a friend only to find out it's too late. You may regret when you're older not having spent more time with your children when they were younger and recognizing you can't ever get that time back. You may regret a particular sin that you committed or a particular habit or pattern of sin that you were in. And though you know that sin has been paid for and you're forgiven, you nonetheless live with the consequences of that sin regularly, perhaps even daily. Those regrets are obviously more serious. Now, to minimize regret, in other words, to keep us from having more regrets, God gives us mentors, he gives us counselors. Maybe you have had a Christian mom or dad who helpfully walked you through life. Uh, mentors are a little bit like uh, bumpers in a bowling alley. You know, they keep you from falling into the gutter. Very helpful to have mentors like that. But whether you have a mentor or not, you have God's Word. Right? The Bible is a guide to you. It's a guide to your life. Right? God's Word is a lamp to your feet. It is a light for your path. Psalm 119, 105. So none of us can turn the clock back. You know, we cannot hop into our DeLorean and drive back in time. But you can go to Scripture and you can pray, Father... How can I live a life without regret? And our Father, who loves to give good gifts to his children, will answer you. And Ecclesiastes is, in fact, one answer to a prayer like that. It seems to have been especially written to keep us from living lives filled with regret. These are the words of God, the shepherd, given through the king, the preacher, and he wrote these words as an older and a wiser man. The, the preacher was a man who knew the world. He experienced the sins of the world. He knows a thing or two about regret, and he writes these words for our good. So our series in Ecclesiastes ends today. It's always a little sad to me when a series ends. I guess you could say, well, Aaron, you could make them longer. I get that. But nonetheless, when I preach the book, I feel like I've sort of found a best friend. And now I need to say goodbye. I pray, though, that uh, even though this series is ending, that the wisdom of the preacher would stay with you forever. Now, we're in the final two chapters of the book. Uh, our passage answers the question, what do you wish you knew when you were young? Now, if you are young, great. If you aren't young, all I know to do is to, well, to read to you what may be my most, my most uh, favorite verse in Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, if you're not young... Well, you're not dead. So all of us living dogs can gain from these messages to the young. 
This wisdom is for all of us. So what do you wish you knew when you were young? And if you are young, what do you need to know? I have three answers from these chapters. First, suffering. Suffering is our lifelong reality. Suffering is our lifelong reality. Trials are an inevitable part of life in a fallen world. Bad things happen. And it's not just that bad things happen to good people. Our own sin ultimately is the source of our suffering. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The preacher says there are really no good people, if you think about it that way. There's really no one righteous, as Paul says later on. There's no one righteous, not, not even one. There's no one who, who does good and never sins. We're all sinful. But what the, what the preacher understands so, so deeply and what he knows gets under our skin so often is the fact that though we're, we're all sinful, we don't all suffer in this world equally. Some of the godliest people, they die young. While those who hate God very often seem to live productive, comfortable, maybe even long-lasting lives. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes reminds us that suffering is around the corner for everyone. Suffering does not discriminate. Right, look at chapter 11, verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will be. In other words, it is going to rain. Life is going to rain on you. You will get wet. The wind will blow a tree down in your life. That is inevitable. There it is. The tree will fall. So, the preacher implies, pull your head out from under the sand and recognize that trials will come. Look at verse 8. In the morning... Excuse me. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity, the vapor. So yes, we should rejoice, but always remember that the days of darkness will be many. There are more 2020s than we care to admit. Just ask those who have lived long lives. Now, maybe this goes without saying. Now, maybe you get it. You understand life is hard and difficult and full of trouble. Uh, maybe we all get it. But I can't help but think the reason why we get so depressed or anxious or discouraged or distraught when life doesn't go our way, when suffering knocks at the door, is because at some level we trained ourselves not to expect him. We thought we hid our address. And yet there he is knocking at the door. And the preacher says, don't be surprised when suffering comes. And even if somehow you manage to get old without much suffering, and that happens, there are some who get old without a great deal of suffering. Well, the preacher says, don't expect getting old to be easy. Now, COVID has decreased the average age of the attending congregation of Mount Vernon. Many of our more senior members are at home right now. 
Some of you are here. Uh, some of you are watching online. All of us are getting older. Let's think for a moment about that. I think the evil days of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, are the days that your body starts failing you. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, verses 1 and 2. The days are approaching when, when taking pleasure in life is hard, if not impossible. It doesn't mean that there's no pleasure as you're getting older, but you recognize as the, the joints get sore and the trials pile up, it can be more difficult to take pleasure even in the little things of life. These, those are what the preacher calls dark and, and cloudy days. But that seems pretty clear. Right? In verses 6 and 7, it's also clear that, that death is coming, the silver cord snapping, the golden bowl breaking, the pitcher shattering, the cistern wheel breaking. Well, these are, are pictures of death. And after death, that's when the funeral and the mourners come, right? We are, we're dust. We're going to return to the earth. Well, it's in verses 3 through 5 where it gets a little bit confusing. The preacher seems to be describing a, a household estate. There's workers on the estate. There's flower grinders on the estate. This estate seems to be in some sense in disrepair. People are trembling. They're, they're, they're bending. They're ceasing to work. Well, let me tell you how it seems most have taken these verses throughout the centuries. These verses may very well be a, a clever picture of the body falling apart. Now, if you're very young, you can just take notes. If you're very old, you are going to know exactly what the preacher is saying. All right? The trembling keepers of the house are aging hands. The strong men, our legs and our back won't stay straight. They're bending. Ouch. Right. The grinders that cease because they are few, they cease working because they are few, are our teeth falling out, making it difficult for us to, to grind, to chew our food. It's our aging eyes that look through the windows but are dimmed. It's almost like a riddle. What looks through a window but is itself dimmed? Perhaps our, our aging eyes. The doors on the street which are shut are our ears 
which can't even hear our grinding teeth. Verse says, I won't go through all of them. Verse, sa- verse 5 says, uh, perhaps without uh, any difficulty, we're afraid of what's high. It gets a little harder to, to walk up the steps when you get older. It wasn't very long ago that we made sure to add that rail just in case someone older was going to be reading scripture. We're afraid of what's high. Our, our, our hair's gray like a blossoming almond tree. Look it up. We become like a grasshopper that no longer hops, but just sort of drags itself along the ground. So the preacher says, live long enough, and this will be you. Right? The young are looking at me dazed. The older heads are nodding. Right? There is no pill to fight old age. And so the preacher doesn't whitewash the truth. All the gyms in the world will not keep you from the onslaught of aging and dying. And the preacher calls them evil days because it's only in a sinful world that we have the the pain of, of aging. But even if we realize we all suffer, even if we realize we all age and die, we're still left with the question the preacher's been visiting in practically every chapter of this book, Why do some of us seem to suffer so much while others seem to suffer so little? Why do some somehow manage to get through those evil days of old age with barely a bent back while others experience early onset dementia? God, what are you doing? We don't always have a good answer. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 5. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. God does something amazing when a woman's egg is fertilized by a man's sperm. We can't understand how exactly the the spirit comes to the, the bones in the womb. Other translations of that verse read, You don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb. Right, for all of our wisdom, we can't explain the most basic things. I heard yesterday that this one COVID vaccine was created by the, if I I remember correctly, the, the children of Turkish immigrants to Germany. Uh, two amazing medical doctors who began working on this vaccine in early 2020, and they are just so smart, just amazing, created a vaccine in record time. But the preacher says for all of their wisdom, and and now they're going to go turn their attention to curing cancer, so pray for them. But for all their wisdom, they can't explain how God knit me together in my mother's womb. No doctor is going to be ever to be able to explain how image bearers are made in the womb of a woman. It's the work of God. And sometimes that's all that we can say about our suffering. You want to know why. Why did I lose my job? Why has God kept me single? Why is my marriage so hard? Why is my son sick? And I don't know why. But I read the Bible And I don't find God hiding in the corner. We're told on our darkest days that he's fully in charge. That in a grand sense, it's all God's work. 
In a grand sense, God works everything. Ecclesiastes 7.13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? It doesn't mean God is the author of sin. We sin. But God is in charge of everything. Everything is his work. And in that sense, who can make straight what God has made crooked? So, if you are grappling with suffering in your life, remember God himself made himself crooked. Remember the cross of Christ, where Jesus willingly, before old age, was bent and crippled. The cross of Christ was no accident. It, too, was the work of God, part of the Father's providential plan for his perfect Son. If God is our Father, we can expect suffering. We are called to carry our cross, whatever that suffering may be, because when we suffer well, we show the world that Christ is our Savior. Right? So to those who are especially young in the room, you may have already experienced great suffering. And I want you to know that suffering is always around the corner, and that doesn't need to scare you, because God's around the corner too. And you can trust him and rely upon him and turn to him. Suffering is our lifelong reality. Now, second, hard work is our lifelong ambition. Hard work is our lifelong ambition. When you stare into suffering, it is tempting to give up, right? Why put myself out there? Why should I take a great risk? Why work hard when trouble is around the corner, when a fire could destroy everything that I've built up? Uh, some people don't want to work hard because life is hard. And they're just not sure it's worth it. But the preacher doesn't want you to give up or be lazy. He doesn't want you to be lazy. I, I, I think he wonders if someone reading through his book, reading about the futility of life, could think, if life is futile, why should I bother? Well, he doesn't want that to be you. Look again at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, if you spend too much time observing the wind, if you spend too much time waiting for the wind to blow the storm your way, you're never going to put your gloves on and pick up your shovel and go into the garden and work. You're never going to plant seeds if you're always just looking for the wind to blow a tree down in your yard. You're always going to be afraid to get to work. And some of us are afraid of failing. We never try, not really. We don't put our plow to the ground. And it's a temptation we all face. I think of uh, the Apostle Paul when he was in Corinth, the first time he was in Corinth, and his job, his job, his sowing was sowing gospel seeds, right? That was his job. That was his calling. That was his ministry. And he knew that whenever he sowed gospel seeds, the clouds would come. And here I'm talking about the clouds of suffering, the clouds of trial, like trees would fall and knock him down. And uh, that type of pain and suffering Paul did not want. And so he was tempted to give up. He was tempted to be afraid. 
Now, how do I know this? Because Luke tells us in Acts 18, verse 9, that when Paul was in Corinth anticipating the reign of suffering to come, the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And with that word of encouragement, do not be afraid, I'm with you, Paul kept working and he worked hard. Now, I would really like to receive that kind of tailor-focused message from the Lord. Nonetheless, I have God's word. I have the promise. You have the promise. If you're a Christian, you have the promise that Jesus will be with you. Just as God promised Paul. We have the promise. Jesus will be with us. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can work hard and not be afraid. Content in the knowledge that God is with you. So long as you're working for Christ, whatever you do, your work is good. And that's, that's the point of verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed. And at the evening, withhold not your hand. In other words, in the morning work, in the evening work. That's sort of where I get work hard. In the morning work, in the evening work, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. In other words, when you work, let's just use the gardening image that we have here. When when you plant seeds, you never know which seeds are actually going to grow. Right? I planted two bushes a few weeks ago, and uh, one of them is about to be dead. The other one is still alive. Both of them in the same place, the same amount of water. You just don't actually know which plant is going to thrive. And this fact shouldn't lead you to work less, but it should lead you to work more. Maybe one will take. Maybe both will take. Maybe both will be good. It's possible neither will be good. That's in God's hands. Working hard, that's in your hands. Paul described his own work in 1 Corinthians 1.5. He wrote, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gave the growth. God is always the one who gives the growth. If you don't read Ecclesiastes carefully, you will think the whole book is simply about the pointlessness of life. I got a text from someone recently thanking me for this sermon series in Ecclesiastes, but it basically began with, I thought this is going to be a real downer. And I really wondered, what in the world are you doing in 2020 preaching through Ecclesiastes? Right? If, you're, if your take on Ecclesiastes is that it's all about the pointlessness of life, well, you're going to walk away pretty dissatisfied. Life can certainly seem futile. That is certainly a truth we find in Ecclesiastes. But the point is to plant seeds even when it seems pointless. It's our job to be faithful even when life seems futile. Right? I don't need to be the best pastor, the most gifted preacher, the most approachable minister. I just need to be faithful. God gives the growth. I want to see more baptisms at Mount Vernon. I want to see more people come to saving faith. Right? Now it's always the time to share the gospel. 
Now is the time to share the gospel. There are people whose lives have been upended by a tiny little virus. There are people whose friends and family members have gotten sick or died because of a tiny little virus. There are people whose lives have been changed because of a tiny little virus. There are people who have not hugged their children because of a tiny little virus. Now is the time to let people know that we are the people who greet one another with a holy kiss. We are the people who know what it's like to love one another as Christ loves. We are a people with more hope than anyone on the face of the planet. Now is the time to share the gospel naturally, regularly, and with a sense of urgency. But God gives the growth. We sow our seed in the morning. We sow our seed in the evening. And then we pray. God gives the growth. But if we don't work hard at evangelism, how in the world should we be expecting a harvest? Now, you don't need to be the smartest person in your office, the most talented engineer, the most well-read lawyer, the most creative marketer, the most organized mom. Work hard. Be faithful. God gives the growth. You don't need to be the best parent. Just be faithful to wash your kids in the water of God's word. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper. Just keep working. Just keep planting gospel seeds. What is it Dory told Nemo? Just keep swimming. Right? Any true wisdom will eventually, will, will discover it has its source in the Bible. Just keep swimming. Now, working hard, we've talked about suffering, working hard, doesn't mean life will be joyless, not at all. I think one of the most surprising insights I've found in going through Ecclesiastes the way we have is this call to enjoy not just God, the giver, but to enjoy the gifts God has given us. So rightly, I think generally speaking, the church needs a corrective, right? I think it's our default to enjoy the gifts and not the giver, okay? So we often need to hear that. Let's not forget we need to enjoy the gifts and not just the giver. God designed us to enjoy the good gifts that he's given us. Verse 7, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Right? Life under the sun is hard. It's full of suffering. It's full of pain. But light is sweet. Right? It's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Verse 9, rejoice, O young man. And, and women, you're included here. Right? Rejoice, O young, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Right now, brothers and sisters who are older, it doesn't mean you get a check out of, of enjoying life. But there's wisdom in the Bible for the young, isn't there? Like, work hard. Work hard. Plant seeds. Use the energy God has given you to do good work when you're young, when your body is not failing you, and enjoy it. Enjoy the life that God has given you. Working hard doesn't have to be burdensome. It's a joy to live for the Lord, however old you are. We're free to enjoy what God has given us. And you know what else the preacher wants us to walk away with in these final chapters of his book? We're free to give it away. We're free to enjoy what God has given us, and we're free to give it away. 
I think that's the point of verses 1 and 2. As Christians, we don't, we don't just work for ourselves. We don't just pursue joy for ourselves. We work for others. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, at first glance, nothing is dumber than casting your bread upon the waters. I didn't just call the Bible dumb. This is sort of the point. Like, who takes bread, whether it's the old kind of bread that's really hard that might skip a little bit on the water, or whether it's wonder bread that's going to last like 0.5 seconds. You're not going to get it back. And, and that, that, that's the whole point. And yet, the Bible says, you will find it after many days. Now, some take this to mean we should engage, so for you businessmen and women, some take this to mean we should engage in international trade. Like King Solomon, we should build ships and trade with foreign nations. Put out your bread, your money, invest it, be a good steward of it, and watch God increase the return. That's certainly true. But I like Matthew Henry's interpretation of this passage better. He argued that these verses, verses 1 and 2, are a call to Christian generosity. He wrote, this is Matthew Henry, Give freely to the poor, though it may seem thrown away and lost, as that which is cast upon the waters. If you've ever given money away, you know what it's like to, to feel richer than before you gave, even though you're technically poor. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful way to live life under the sun, isn't it? It's a remarkable way for the book to end. Whether it's our home or our time or our words, our wealth, let's cast it upon the waters. You never know how your gift is going to make a difference. In verse 2, we're told to give a portion to seven or even to eight. Don't, don't limit it to seven. Give it to eight. Give lavishly. Give generously. Brothers and sisters, be generous. Lavish what you have on others. And if, there, if there's anything with regard to this sort of year of generosity that we've been focused on at, at Mount Vernon, I, as someone who's been a Christian now for so many years, am so tired of money being the first thing that comes to Christians' minds when they hear the word generosity. God has given you so much relational skill, you know, words with which you can encourage, time that you can spend with others. It's not all about the money. It's about the gifts God's given you. Cast it upon the waters. You may never see it again. And yet, it's going to come back to you. Be open-handed with what you have for the sake of those you love. And let's not just talk about it, but let's, let's do it. How can you be more generous? You know, there are dangers to, to making certain weeks, you know, special. It makes us think that we need to only focus on Thanksgiving during Thanksgiving week. But, but think during this week, when there are so many people in your life or near your life 
about 60 members of our own church who are unable to gather with us, what would it look like for you to be generous to them over the course of the next few days? And if you need help with that, you know, give me a call. I'm happy to help you think through how you could be generous with brothers and sisters and others. David Gibson is a pastor in Scotland. And uh, he, a few years ago, wrote a book on Ecclesiastes. It's called Living Life Backwards. It's a great book. He followed Henry's interpretation of these first two verses. I want you to listen to what Gibson said about verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. He said, Here is wisdom you will not hear anywhere else. Take the best of what you have and the best of what you are and give them away. Hold them out in open hands to God and to others. Worldly wisdom builds bunkers and barns to prepare for disaster. Biblical wisdom instead throws open the windows and doors of our homes and builds schools and hospitals and churches and sees rich Christians become much, much poorer than they might otherwise have been. I want to be like that. I want to work hard, not for one season, but for every season in my life. I want working hard to be a lifelong ambition of mine. Whether I'm 48 or 84, I want to pour out my life, not, not to be a savior, but because of my savior. If I'm going to grow into his image, I need to follow his example. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. I want us to be a church like that. Don't let 2020 go to waste. If anything, experience has taught us that life is short. And now we've got the Bible telling us day in and day out, life is so much shorter than you could even possibly imagine. Don't let it go to waste. Cast your bread upon the water. What do you wish you knew when you were young? Suffering is our lifelong reality. Hard work is our lifelong ambition. And third and finally, remembering God. Remembering God is our lifelong joy. Now, I said that a casual, sloppy reading of Ecclesiastes can lead you thinking life is futile. Even without reading Ecclesiastes, this is what a ton of people think, right? They think about life as being futile and pointless, meaningless, vain, and it leaves a lot of people in despair. A lot of people are going through the, the motions of daily living, and they really are in despair. Uh, when I lived in Washington, D.C., uh, a number of years ago, right after an election, I met a man by the name of Bruce, and, and Bruce uh, had a, a fairly long and successful career in politics. Never an elected official, but one of those people who worked for elected officials. But when we say elections have consequences, we certainly have uh, uh, nationwide implications of a statement like that, but there's also consequences for employees of politicians. And for Bruce, the consequences of a lost election was a lost job. And for various reasons, Bruce had a hard time finding another job, getting back in the saddle. 
uh, he was really discouraged. He was in despair. He came to church a couple times. Uh, we met up. I shared the gospel with him. I prayed for him. But all the while, he's looking for answers, kind of, sort of, in the Bible. He's also looking for answers in a bottle. And quite literally, a few months after I met Bruce, uh, his life ended. His liver crashed, and he died. He died in despair. To the best of my knowledge, Bruce did not put his faith in, in the Messiah, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For him... Uh, the, 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 the suffering of life led him to the conclusion life is futile and all he can do is despair. And I believe there's a lot of people like that. They live life with an overwhelming sense of despair. I also think that there's a lot of people with the same worldview, but because of the circumstances of life, they live life with an overwhelming sense of arrogance. Right? Uh, they're just as hopeless if they don't know Christ, but they're not aware of their hopelessness. Because for them, life is pretty good. They did get a good job. Right? They do have a, a good bank account. They do have a lot of health. And so they figure all that really matters, if you can't really know the, the end game, is to enjoy this world as much as you possibly can. So they don't die in despair but they die in arrogance. They die with nothing to look forward to but the wrath of God. Now, what does the preacher want? The preacher knows that there's going to be people exposed to Ecclesiastes living with an overwhelming sense of despair. He knows there's going to be people confronted by Ecclesiastes living with an, an overwhelming sense of, of arrogance. What does the preacher want for men and women like that? What does he want really for all of us? And he tells us in Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember also your creator, your creator in the days of your youth. If you ever wished that the preacher would be more direct in chapters 1 through 11, here he's getting pretty direct now. Remember your creator in the days of your youth without letting another day go by. Remember, regardless of how old you are, don't give in to despair, don't live in arrogance. Remember God your creator. God made you. God made you. And tomorrow you will stand before him and you will be judged. That's how the book ends. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed to judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Right? The the history of your life, not just your search history, your thought history. Every deed, every thought, every inclination of your heart will be laid bare tomorrow when you stand before God, your maker. And this isn't a threat. As surely as the sun rises and falls, God's just judgment will come. We will all give an account for our lives. We don't live in a cold, blind universe, which is what so many people think. They don't talk about it very much, but, but if you double-click on their heart, that's what they believe, that we live in a cold, blind universe. But regardless of how futile your life may seem, your life has value, and it has purpose, and it has meaning, 
because God is your creator, chapter 12, verse 1, and he made you to glorify him so that on that day of judgment, chapter 12, verse 14, you might sing his praises, recognizing Christ took the judgment of God for you, Christian. It's why the preacher says, remember also your creator. So much of this book has been telling us how terrible life under the sun can seem, but it's not terrible if you remember the one who put you there. It's not terrible if you remember the one who made you to know him and to love him. It's not terrible if you remember that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Oh, that's how we keep swimming every day. God, how can I glorify you and enjoy you today? How can we remember God? Well, we find our answer in these closing verses of this great book. First, delight in God's word. Look at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So we, we see at the very end of Ecclesiastes how this book came to us, right? The preacher, filled with the wisdom of God, devoted himself to teaching the people. He worked hard at it, right? Uh, the, the, the authors of the Bible didn't sort of like zone out while God downloaded a script into their brain that they could just write out on a scroll. No, he weighed and studied and arranged many proverbs. I take that to be a reference to Ecclesiastes. With great care, he did it carefully. And there's nothing accidental or sloppy about the construction or the arrangement of Ecclesiastes. He prayerfully and he carefully chose each word. And these words are, verse 10, words of truth. They are words of truth. But notice the beginning of verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight. These words are for our delight. We are to enjoy them. They are to please us, to encourage us, to delight us, to make us happy. That is so hard today when all of our senses are numbed by television and film. But God's word is here to make us happier than the most lighthearted comedy. God's word is here to make us feel more deeply than the most heartbreaking drama. These words are for our, our delight. Have you ever been in a pitch black room groping around for the light switch, unable to see anything? You, you stub your toe against the wall. You, you trip over the coffee table. And then all of a sudden, you find the light and you say, praise God. My toe hurts. You're pleased. You're able to see. That's how we ought to feel when we come to God's word. Not merely the word, for those of us who were in Romans, not merely a law that helps us see how sinful we are, but a word that gives life. I believe the psalmist of Psalm 119 knew the life of the Lord. And so he said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. This is someone who knew how to take God's word and let that word point him to this Savior. And so he loved it. 
brothers and sisters, as we end Ecclesiastes, delight in God's word. If there's anything that I have loved about 2020, probably more than anything else, is there have been moments this year when I've said to myself, wow, things are really a mess, but God, your word is sure. And I delighted in it, probably in a way that I haven't delighted in it quite the same way before. Pray the Holy Spirit would fill you with a love for Scripture and a joy in reading it. This is how we remember God, by delighting in his word. Second, rely on God's word. Look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, I wrote a book in 2020. Like, good job, Aaron. Like, I wrote a book. It's not a bad book. But you don't need to read it. I believe verse 12. Of making books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. There is a place for reading good books. A place for devoting yourself to study. But take this warning to heart. Beware of relying on anything or anyone other than Scripture. One thing I loved about 2020 is I've never in my life seen more people who I loved and respected so much disagree so often. Never in my life. I'm thankful for 2020. Scripture is reliable, absolutely trustworthy. It is our lighthouse protecting us from a rocky shore. Scripture is a storehouse ready to supply our every need. Now, those were nice pictures, weren't they? The lighthouse, right? The store. That was nice, wasn't it? Well, let's stick with the Bible. The preacher has his own word pictures. He calls Scripture a goad. Let's recover the word goad. A goad, I had to look it up, a goad is a pointed stick used to keep cattle in line. We apparently are like cows going in the wrong direction. Like a goad, Scripture corrects us. It gets us moving in the right direction. If you are never goaded by the Bible, you are reading with your eyes shut. Scripture is like nails firmly fixed. A firmly fixed nail is secure and reliable. You can hang heavy things on it, and those things won't fall to the ground. The Bible is like a firmly fixed nail. You can hang your life on it. All of your problems, all of your questions, all of your anxieties, all of the issues that arise from life under the sun are addressed by God's inspired word. Don't assume the Bible doesn't directly address the problem you're facing. I know it might not directly address the problem you're facing. I get that. But wouldn't you like to like just check it out to be sure? Is there anything in the Bible that would directly address what I'm talking about? Now, obviously, it's going to indirectly address anything. But it's a big Bible. There's a lot in there. Brothers and sisters, it's been a hard year. I pray through it all. God has taught you to rely on his unchanging word. How do we remember God? I want to remember him. I don't want to be forgetful of him. I'm so tempted. I am tempted to walk to the back 
of the main hall in the foyer and begin forgetting God. I'm so tempted, and I just preached. How can you remember him? Delight in God's word. Rely on God's word. Third, follow his word. Look at verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. In other words, this is what it means fundamentally to be human. You want to be human? Fear God. Keep his commandments. Don't fear the world. Don't fear your job. Don't fear your future. Fear the Lord. Trust him. Love him. Speaking to his disciples before he died, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And of course, Jesus lived his entire life uh, pointing his disciples to his heavenly father. Fear the father. How do, you, how do you fear the father? You love Jesus. You want to obey Ecclesiastes 12, 13? You want to fear God? Love Jesus. Make much of God the Son incarnate. Believe Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Savior. Give your life to him every day. Follow him. Right? Don't be someone who delights in the Bible and then doesn't obey it. I, was, uh, I've to I tell my testimony fairly often because it really makes me happy and sometimes I think it's helpful for you to know how one man came to faith. I hope you share your testimonies with one another. You know, when it's Thanksgiving, uh, all right, I don't know how you're going to gather. <laughs> As you gather with Christians, ask them, how did you come to faith? What an edifying experience to just talk about how you came to saving faith. I love telling that story. But the older I get, and I've told this to you before, Mount Vernon, but the older I get, the more I appreciate what happened about a year and a half after I became a Christian. Because, you see, I became a Christian when I was pretty young, and uh, I, when, when I gave my life to Christ, I, I do think I was genuinely a Christian, but I didn't understand deeply what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship. You know, I knew I needed to follow Jesus, but I didn't really understand the cost of that. Well, about a year and a half of life in college, about a year and a half more experience, I was still very young, but I understood better that this is a really big deal. This isn't just like what I'm going to do on Sunday morning. This is getting at what job I'm going to take and where I'm going to live and how I'm going to talk and who I'm going to spend time with and what I'm going to laugh at and what I'm going to watch, who I'm going to date, who I'm going to marry, how I'm going to parent, how I'm going to die. It was a bit overwhelming. And there were some circumstances in my life that from a human perspective made me a bit of a, a wobbly Christian. And one weekend, uh, I drove home from the university and I uh, spent time with my family. In, in particular, I'll never forget a conversation that I had with my stepfather and my uncle. And my, my, my dad, my stepfather, he, he could kind of tell there was a little wobbling going on. He's not a believer. And uh, he did what was in his mind the right thing. He pounced. 
and he encouraged me to abandon Christ. Um, he's a sinner. I love him. That's what sinners do. I mean, if, if you don't think Jesus is God, you're probably going to warn your son who's following Jesus to, like, turn around. Right? That just makes total sense. And I remember at that moment, I know I've told it to you before, but for those of you who haven't heard it, I remember that moment, that, that inner conflict. Who am I going to follow? Am I going to follow my dad? Or am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to fear my dad? Or am I going to fear God? Am I going to keep my dad's commandments? Or am I going to keep Jesus' commandments? In other words, at some level, Christianity is not that complicated. So, if 100% of you in this room, or in the fellowship hall, or online, if 100% of you hearing my voice are Christians, praise God, by His grace and for His glory, you fear Him and you follow His commandments. But if there are some of you in this room, or in the fellowship hall, or watching, who have never done the most basic thing, which is to say, resolved in your heart that you're not going to follow yourself, that you're not going to be your own king, that you're not going to live life under your own authority, that you're not going to think you're wiser than the Bible. If you've never done that, I call upon you to do it now. Let Ecclesiastes have its intended effect on you to lead you to remember your maker, to remind you that one day very soon you will stand before him and to know that your only hope is delighting and relying and following Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate. The preacher calls it the end of the matter. Regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of the regrets that you bring to the table today, Here's the truth that matters most. One day you will stand before God. He will bring every deed into judgment. And on that day, there will be one question on his mind. Is Jesus Christ your long, lifelong joy? Only Jesus lived a life with no regrets. He's the one who willingly suffered in the place of his people, entrusting himself into the hands of his good father. Jesus is the one who worked hard for our salvation and works even now for our good. Jesus is the one, the only one, who perfectly feared God and kept his commandments to the very end, to the end of the cross. And so Jesus Christ, our great God, is the only one who deserves our praise and our worship and our life. Heavenly Father, as we head into Thanksgiving week, we long to be a thankful people. May we be a billion times more thankful for Christ our Savior than for anything that shows up on our dining room table or anyone who walks through our front door. May Christ be everything to us. Help us, dear Lord, follow him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep us from relying upon our own wisdom or any other aspect of ourselves that we might trust in or put before you. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.